Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the surface, business has rarely had it so good. Profits and share prices are near record levels. Many companies benefited from pandemic relief programs. Mega deals are at all-time highs. But for how long? Governments around the world want to bend companies to their will. The big state is back in business. I'm Rachna Shanbhav, The Economist finance editor. And this is Money Talks, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. Today, we're looking at a new age of interventionism. It won't work for the free market to simply ensure that that your own corporations thrive and succeed. Public distrust of big business and political frustration in the face of global challenges are combining into a potent force. It's clearly the place where there is closest to bipartisan consensus and progress. In response, governments are reimagining a suite of old tools to bring companies to heel. There is now a broad recognition that there is a lack of competition in the economy and that the kind of failed Reagan slash neoliberal approach to antitrust is the cause of that. But can the tactics of the past work any better in the present? These are fundamental reforms. Are they going to solve these kind of problems? I fear that the answer is not very much. and government have always had a tempestuous relationship. Like a pair of on-again, off-again lovers, they've oscillated between inseparable closeness, aloof distance, provocative defiance, and, sometimes, overbearing control. Our business editor, Jan Piotrowski, has been following the twists and turns of this often problematic relationship to find out where it's heading. Jan, welcome to Money Talks. Hi, I think this might be my debut. So long time listener, first time caller. Well, we're certainly thrilled to have you, especially because you have written a terrific special report on business and the state, uh, a modest topic. Yeah, no pressure at all. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I'll go easy on you. Thank God for that. (laughs) Now, let's start perhaps by looking back at history. The relationship between business and the state has swung between extremes over time. Can you sketch out that arc for us? I mean, in very, very broad terms, and this is an incredibly potted history, you know, if you if you assume that the history of modern capitalism, or certainly of big business, began in, in, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, then at the time, in the second half of the 19th century, you sort of basically had the night watchman state, which was very limited, mostly concerned with enforcing contracts and maintaining public security. And the state remained sort of more or less hands-off, depending on where you were, whether it was Europe or or America, which were the two capitalist places at the time, until the Great Depression and the Second World War. And and in the, the aftermath of those two tragedies, politicians felt that 
the state was the only entity with the wherewithal to manage the reconstruction. And and so the era, sort of after 1945, and especially in Europe, you had an era of the state becoming much more involved both in owning companies and in managing companies. So if tragedies provoke a more interventionist approach from the state towards business, what tends to prompt periods of a hands-off approach? Well, mostly it's the failures of the of the more hands-on approach uh, when they accumulate enough, right? So at the start of these periods of a greater state involvement, you sometimes have you know, a, a pretty brisk growth. That certainly happened straight after the Second World War in Europe, throughout the 1940s, 50s, 60s. After a while, that system began to creak. And you could see that basically the states were not doing a terribly good job. Many of the economies where this was happening began to lose dynamism and fell into stagnation, sometimes accompanied by fast rising prices. So from the 1980s and certainly the 1990s, I mean, this began in, in Britain under Thatcher and in America under Reagan, you had uh, a, a sort of a, an intellectual shift which saw the state retreat and leave business to do its own thing. Interestingly enough, at the same time, the communist system began to fall apart. And then obviously in China, starting in the late 1970s under Deng Xiaoping, you also had a movement away from full state control of enterprise. And that sort of liberalizing period lasted pretty much until the financial crisis of 2007-09. And where are we in the cycle now? Well, it seems to me that we have certain things happening in the world, which once again have prompted governments to think that they may have retreated too much and that their help is needed and even necessary. The fact that recovery after the financial crisis was sort of slow, you know, the concerns of wealth and and income inequality rose to the fore. In the past 10 years, those concerns have only grown. And then in the past couple of years, two, three, um, certainly during the pandemic, a new set of concerns emerged. And and the three obvious ones are the realisation that climate change is indeed a big problem, the re-emergence of a grand geopolitical contest, which prompts governments and politicians to align business interests more closely with national security interests. And the third obvious one is the pandemic, when governments needed to step in to help both citizens, but also to shore up a lot of the private sector to stop it from collapsing. What does the new interventionism look like in practice? Are we seeing a return to state ownership? So the the interesting thing about the current phase is that, especially in the Western world, and actually to an extent in China, um, a lot of the ownership is sort of exercised somewhat at an arm's length these days. So the four things that I noticed, or at least the four categories of greater state meddling in business that I identify, first of all, industrial policy, second of all, competition policy, Third, general government regulation, things like, you know, green rules, which these days affect everyone. And then finally, corporate taxation, which is being rethought on a global scale and often on on the national level. So governments are marshalling three sticks, if you like, antitrust policy, regulation and taxation. And one enormous carrot is being dangled in front of businesses, which is industrial policy. Now, industrial policy is a term that tends to get bandied around a lot and quite vaguely. How do you understand it? And how is it manifesting itself around the world? 
Yeah, so it, it is a very vague term. Um, I basically take it as governments going back into the business of picking winners uh, and funneling taxpayer money or government public resources towards selected companies or selected technologies that are seen as being mission critical. After a few decades where it was really out of fashion because it was seen as having failed in the 1970s, is back in favor. So, for example, you know, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that became law last year in America, bipartisan support, you know, it's studded with goodies for businesses. Astonishingly, given the bipartisan rancor in Washington, a bill passed the evenly split Senate by a large margin, a filibuster-proof majority, last summer, which would basically splurge $250 billion on a variety of, of technologies, including $52 billion for chip makers. In Europe, you have a large chunk of the big uh, COVID stimulus package, uh, which is going towards bolstering digital technologies, a lot of that for chip makers. You have the French president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, unveiling a France 2030 strategy, which echoes the made in China 2025 to an almost laughable degree. And then in China, you just have the state doubling down on trying to erect entire domestic industries from, you know, from plane making to chip making, almost from scratch. Now, what's interesting, as you said, especially in the West, is that this support is coming both from left of centre, but also from right of centre. Yes, yeah. And I was talking to, you know, when I was in Washington to do some reporting for this survey, I spoke to a few people on the conservative side of the political divide who are also toying with the idea, which, you know, historically has really been out of favor in conservative circles. And one of them was Oren Cass. Uh, he is the director of American Compass, which is a newish think tank in Washington. There's a huge question of how we define industrial policy. And I think a lot of debates actually end up there with people talking past each other on what we even mean. In my mind, industrial policy just means policy that's intended to shape the flow of investment across industries. And so there are a lot of reasons that you might want to do that and that can play out in the course of an enormous number of different debates and, and policies. We're seeing a, a real problem of financialization and a tendency of capital to not flow into the real economy and lead to investment in productive capacity, but instead to sort of spin up in asset bubbles. Looking beyond the West, I think the reality is that we have increasingly a competition with the Chinese economic model. And that's not to say that Western countries should adopt the Chinese economic model, but it is to say that if your intention is to be competing with these Chinese national champions, we are seeing it won't work for the free market to simply ensure that, that your own corporations thrive and succeed. Historically, it seems to me that, that greater state interventionism tended to be associated with the sort of political left or, or left of center. Could you tell us a little bit what the conservative case for industrial policy is in your mind? I think it's really important to distinguish conservatism for the, from the free market fundamentalism that we've seen on the right of center in recent decades. As a response to communism, to some extent, you had the Reagans and the Thatchers really focused intensively on the power of free markets. And to be sure, I think conservatives recognize the power of free markets. But there's nothing inherently conservative about saying uh, more market, less government involvement is always better. 
And so I think what you're increasingly seeing from conservatives is a recognition that if we want the American economy to be generating good outcomes for Americans and and workers and their families and communities, the free market isn't necessarily producing that. In, In the last couple of decades, it really hasn't. And so I think conservatives are rightly asking whether it's the interests of workers, whether it's the interests of national security, what role does government have to play? Which, which of course, is very much the American tradition if one goes all the way back to the, the early years of the Republic and, and the Hamiltons and the Lincolns and so forth. In what places does conservative industrial policy, as you see it, overlap with the progressive version? And, and in what places do these two diverge? Well, I think there's potentially a lot of overlap in the idea that there are socially valuable forms of investment that markets aren't necessarily going to pursue. I think where you're likely to see still a lot of disagreement is number one, what are those socially valuable forms of investment? And then number two, how does government actually facilitate them effectively? So on the left, you know, we still see a, a huge emphasis on climate above all else. Whereas I think conservatives will recognize that, you know, an energy transition could be one piece of a sensible industrial policy, but it can't be the main focus. In, in many cases, you'll, you'll destroy industrial jobs as quickly as you create them. And likewise, I think we see on the left increasingly just sort of the, the radical social progressivism leak in. Uh, and then when you, when you think about the mechanisms, I think you'll still see on the left of center an awful lot more confidence that the government should choose specific companies to invest in should try to do more of the work itself. Whereas I think on the right of center, what you see is a much greater focus on essentially the rules of the game. So what is the tax policy? What is potentially the form of you know matching for private sector investments? What are the trade rules and so forth that we want to have in place that actually will shape a market, but still wanting competitive private actors in the market to be driving the investment and, and the competition at the end of the day? So given the, the, a degree of convergence between parts of the American the left, left of center, parts of the American right, right of center, how likely do you think that it will actually materialize in practice in the sort of foreseeable future? I think one of the fascinating things about industrial policy right now is that it's clearly the place where there is closest to bipartisan consensus and progress. Yeah, just as we're seeing bipartisanship on the carrot of industrial policy, we're also seeing it on the stick of antitrust. Just yesterday, on January the 11th, we heard that the Federal Trade Commission's case against Meta, formerly Facebook, would be allowed to go ahead. And the big tech bosses have got used to being hauled in front of Congress to justify their market power. How do you read what's been happening in this area? Yes, it's interesting. I mean, what's happening there is really a a big rethink of the dominant antitrust philosophy of the past 40 years. So basically in the past 40 years, trust busters were primarily concerned with stopping mergers and acquisitions or business practices which which harm consumers, measured by whether a certain activity raised prices for consumers. It's called the consumer welfare standard. And that itself was a reaction to a broader understanding of, of 
antitrust, which predates the, the sort of the 1980s. And we're seeing a return to that. And in America, this goes under the moniker of, of neo-Brandesianism. Louis Brandeis was a Supreme Court justice who was an advocate of this more expansive view of antitrust. Um, I believe, is the trendy term hipster antitrust? Hipster antitrust is the trendy term for it, indeed. And I think Lena Kahn, who was one of the, the, the faces of this approach, who is now the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, which is the main antitrust agency in America, is a few years younger than me, which is rather depressing, to be perfectly honest, but also very impressive. And they have occupied many of the of the really powerful trust-busting positions in the American antitrust apparatus. And one of the intellectual leaders of this movement is Sarah Miller, who is the head of the American Economic Liberties Project, which champions this new approach. Our approach to antitrust is what we see as a traditional purpose of antitrust, which is to promote fair, competitive, open markets and to decentralize economic power and in so doing decentralize political power, since we see those two things as inextricably linked and related to the health not only of creating broad-based prosperity, but also uh, to the health of democracy overall. The last 40 years of antitrust um, regulations especially in America, were themselves a reaction to an earlier era and the perceived excesses of that earlier era. So what makes you think that now is the time to, to think back and reevaluate those old roots? Well, 40 years ago, we started what President Biden noted over the summer was kind of a, a natural experiment. We are now 40 years into the experiment of letting giant corporations accumulate more and more power. And where have, what have we gotten from it? Less growth, weakened investment, fewer small businesses. Too many Americans who feel left behind. Too many people who are poorer than their parents. I believe the experiment failed. Today, it's broadly recognized that in America, monopolization, and that doesn't just mean one firm, but it means kind of market power, is very, very concentrated across a broad range of industries. And that's true whether it's technology firms or meatpacking or airlines or niche markets. We find kind of incredible little monopolies everywhere you look. The executive order I'm soon going to be signing commits the federal government to full and aggressive enforcement of antitrust laws. No more tolerance for abusive actions by monopolies. No more bad mergers that lead to mass layoffs, higher prices, fewer options for workers and consumers alike. I think there is now a broad recognition that there is a lack of competition in the economy and that the kind of failed Reagan slash neoliberal approach to antitrust is the cause of that. It's relatively straightforward to understand what it means for prices for consumers to rise. The notion of market power is a little bit more nebulous. So how do we tell that someone has too much market power and how do we measure that? Yeah, I would say two things. One, just to slightly tweak your definition of consumer welfare, it wasn't really based on whether prices rose or not. It was based on whether prices were predicted to rise or not. And often those predictions were not accurate. So I think part of our critique of consumer welfare is that it isn't actually rooted in any standard. It's rooted in very expensive economic models that teams of economists 
bring to judges and attempt to convince them that prices will go up by X amount or prices will go down by X amount. From our perspective, we want to look at market power and direct evidence of market power in a lot of these cases. So it's actually looking at how a corporation is able to act and making determinations on whether that behavior is something that is augmented by excessive market power. But at least in principle, you know, it is possible that by, you know, preventing certain mergers or banning certain practices, that might result in, in actually in higher prices for consumers. If there was evidence after a while that, that this new antitrust philosophy is in fact leading to, to higher prices for consumers, would you reconsider it? Or, or do you think that these other things, that the, you know, just the prevention of overly concentrated power in private markets is an ill in itself that needs to be countered? I think in the case of focusing exclusively on prices, that discounts other elements of what competitive markets should produce. For example, higher wages. And, you know, I think just to add to that in the current environment where policymakers are struggling with how to address inflation, it's fairly clear an economy in which there is significant concentrations of market power and thus pricing power that corporations aren't facing much competitive pressure and can raise prices kind of under the guise of inflation. And moreover, that supply chain shortages that are genuinely pushing prices higher are also a result of markets that are concentrated, where uh, resiliency has been sacrificed for increased efficiency and, you know, therefore higher profit margins for, for companies. So I think, you know, particularly in this moment, it's it's not necessarily a major concern that ramping up antitrust enforcement is going to leave the consumer, you know, the worker, a citizen, worse off. I think quite the opposite. So Jan, how would you compare the picture in America to what's happening elsewhere? Are you seeing the same kind of dynamics play out? Yeah, so a lot of what Sarah says animates the competition authorities in other parts of the world. I mean, in Europe, when you talk to Margrethe Vestager, who's the top EU trust buster, you know, she echoes a lot of what the hipster antitrust folks are saying in America. In Britain, the Competition and Markets Authority is also going after the sort of deals that would once have passed pretty unremarked upon. And then in China, uh, what we've seen in the past year has been basically, you know, an extreme version of hipster antitrust. I mean, basically, the Chinese antitrust authorities have clamped down on, especially on the tech industry, with remarkable force. In fact, when I was talking to uh, one of the proponents of hipster antitrust in, in D.C., he said that the Chinese regulators are, quote-unquote, some of our best readers. So, you know, you do see it reanimating trust-busting around the world. Well, we'll actually be speaking to Margareta Vestaya in next week's show when we'll be looking in more detail at what this new approach to competition means for business. And in the meantime, if you're not yet an Economist subscriber, you should be. You'll get full access to all our journalism, including Jan's excellent special report. There's an introductory rate for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes for this episode. I'm 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Jan, we've talked about a return to industrial policy, government picking winners, and about the hammer of antitrust. But it seems almost like we're missing the obvious here, the most straightforward tool that governments have at their disposal, which is regulation. Yeah, there is a lot of that going about as well. Um, I mean, the one thing about regulation is that they're growing pretty much incessantly. Very often you get an uptick in the number of rules and regulations whenever a big law passes. And in the past couple of years, partly as a result of the pandemic, you have had some big laws come through. In America, for instance, you had the pandemic relief packages, each of them several hundred pages. You know, the infrastructure bill is, I think, over a thousand. In Europe, you have two massive pieces of of legislation coming through. One is called the Digital Services Act and the other is called the Digital Markets Act, which will affect all companies really because they concern data. And at the same time, you also have a lot of the ESG best practices being codified into hard law. Uh, So things like, you know, forcing companies to monitor their supply chains or introducing, you know, the new green taxonomy in Europe. And all of that is basically happening at the same time. It's hard to put a number on the quality of regulations. But one person who has had a crack at trying to gauge the quality is Christian Arndt Baskel of, of the OECD. Regulations have become more complex uh, than 100 years ago because just the world has become much more complex. When we have new technologies, there's a much more international exchange. So the question is more, do we actually have the right regulations? And how do we ensure we still have the right regulations in the future? Do regulations and laws work actually work in practice? There are sometimes nice intentions when they're put into paper, but do they actually really work on the ground? I mean, even self-professed, regulation busters like Donald Trump, who promised to cut two regulations for every one that he introduces, uh, managed to leave the rule books thicker than the ones he inherited. Governments spend a lot of time now on quality of new laws and regulations. However, we have a big, big issue with the stock of regulation, which has accumulated over the years. For new governments coming in, it's always better to talk about their campaign promises than to look into what their predecessors have left them with. In less than 25% of OECD countries, there's a systematic assessment of whether laws and regulations in place actually do work in practice, whether they achieve their objectives, whether there might be a better possibility. And maybe in some cases also the objective is not valid anymore because laws which were passed 50 years ago, the world was different. So there is a sort of a a trend that once an agency is created, it never gets defunded. And once you have a bureaucracy in place, you know, it sort of self-perpetuates and and you have this accumulation. So in some way, what we need is a bit of a Marie Kondo for laws and regulations. We need to take every law and regulation. We need to see, do we still need them? Is there some other law which might fulfill or other regulation that might fulfill already the same purpose? Is there something better? And if not... If you really have the feeling the laws and regulations do not work anymore, if there's evidence for this, then I think we need to thank the laws and regulations and say goodbye and wave goodbye. 
in many cases, some regulation is warranted. The problem is that very often there's a sort of a knee-jerk reaction. It's not really well thought through. Policymakers don't think carefully enough about the trade-offs that, that go into introducing various pieces of regulation. And sweeping regulations can backfire. You cannot regulate everything. Do we need to prescribe every detail? Is there some other alternative, for instance, market-based instruments, information campaign, or even the doing nothing option? In some cases, it actually might work better <laughs> than what you're planning to do. The fourth and final big strategy that you've identified, Jan, is taxation. Of course, every business's favourite part of their relationship with the state, no doubt. How does tax come into all of this? So for many years now, there has been a sort of a relentless trend in seemingly ever-declining corporate tax rates, a race to the bottom. You know, countries, in order to attract investment, were lowering taxes to induce companies to set up shop. And I think that the, the last of the big trends that I've noticed is a sense that there might be an inflection point here. That first of all, that on the national level, corporate tax rates may be going up. And then the really big thing that's happening is a pact being championed by the OECD to really reorganize the regime of corporate taxation, which has basically been in place for the past 100 years. I think it's fair to say that you know, those 2021 agreements are actually the most significant reform to the international tax system in a century. One person who explained this very clearly to me was Professor Michael Devereaux, who is the director of the Oxford University Centre for Business Taxes and the author of a new book on the subject called Taxing Profit in a Global Economy. What the new framework is going to do is to actually move in two different directions simultaneously, actually while keeping the existing system as well. The market element is going to say we're going to look at the consolidated profit of a multinational company. We're going to look where it makes its sales and they're going to allocate part of its profits to those countries where it makes sales. That's the kind of pillar one of this proposal. Pillar two is a global minimum tax rate. So that says if you have a multinational company and there's a subsidiary in a country which is not collecting sufficient tax on it, then the country the parent has the right to essentially top it up to 15%. So Jan, why is this reform so significant? Is it going to satisfy those who want to get big business to pay their fair share? I think it won't necessarily raise all that much extra revenue. I think to some estimates say on the order of 4% on top of what is being raised from corporations at the moment globally. But because it, it sort of upends the way that they've been doing things for a very long time, it will invariably be a bit of a headache for a lot of the very large firms that really, you know, have optimized their operations within the current structure. Here's Michael Devereaux again. The real significance of this is not that we raise a little bit more money. It is that we are kind of fundamentally revisiting the nature of the system. It is going to do something to profit shifting, I think. In particular, the global minimum tax is really going to fix minimum taxes paid by multinationals at 15%, you know, effective tax rates. So that, that will make a difference. But there are also the existing system has many, many flaws. It's, it's really problematic in a number of ways. It's extraordinarily complex and it creates considerable uncertainty, which you know, affects an investment as well. It distorts competition between businesses. It distorts where businesses choose to locate. And these are fundamental reforms that are going to solve these kind of problems. And I fear that the answer is not very much. You know, the impact on the complexity of the system is like mind boggling. It's already 
more complicated than anybody could possibly understand. And now we're adding two new dimensions to that while not taking away anything that we've already got. It's a very important reform. But, you know, do we now have a stable long-term system that we can live with for the next 100 years? I think the answer's got to be no. I think this is the beginning of the reform rather than the end of the reform. So you've described action along four different dimensions, a patchwork of different government-led initiatives, Jan. What does all this add up to in terms of the impact on business? A lot of this has, has happened in the post-war period, you know, might have a stimulatory effect in the short run, especially if firms start jockeying for privilege, favour and, and in, in order to extract rents. And before a lot of the, uh, the tedious red tape begins to snarl up uh, business activity before high taxes hit profits. I mean, of course, unsurprisingly, the people who are in favour of, of this new agenda say that this time is different. Lauren Cass at American Compens once again. Well, I think there are certainly plenty of downsides to industrial policy, but in evaluating it, you have to ask the question compared to what? The American economy is quite clearly characterized today by some very large rent-seeking firms that invest heavily in being coddled by government and have become quite lazy and uninnovative. And so the question is, what is the right balance? One of the real promising elements of having conservatives engaging on industrial policy discussions is that they will pursue those ends with much greater attention to public choice concerns, to government's own failures, to the risks of chlorosis than progressives historically have. And so the, the framework that I always try to keep in mind is that we want to, to have the most competitive market possible, but we want to have that market operating within a set of rules that encourages the kinds of outcomes that we want. The worry is that governments forget that when they become more interventionist, the risk is that they will stifle innovation, that they will dampen dynamism that might hurt the companies themselves, harm consumers, because if your domestic companies are shielded from foreign competition, they don't need to worry as much about keeping prices low. Uh, if you start raising taxes, companies might be disincentivized to invest and that might dampen living standards in the long run. And I think there's a, a sort of a more insidious and, and sort of slightly more subtle problem. And that is if, if all this ends up meaning that countries turn inwards, you might end up with a sort of soft decoupling. And that, in fact, might serve to deepen the geopolitical rifts, which are one of the animating forces for what's going on at the moment in a sort of vicious circle. But as we discussed, there are good reasons why governments are being more active. We've talked about national security, the need to galvanise action on climate change, acting on inequality. Do you think the downsides still overwhelmingly outweigh the benefits? I think it basically, you know, government intervention is, is needed in many of these areas, but it needs to be well thought through. What really struck me when doing the reporting is just the accumulation of, of all this happening at the same time. It's, it's a question of, of whether the tools that are being used are blunt, which many of the tools that I've identified appear to be, and whether they're being wielded too freely. And I think that's the risk here. My advice would be to read some history from the 1970s and 1980s and try to remember why the politicians from a generation ago decided that retreat from business was a good idea for the state. Jan Petroski, thank you. Thanks, it was a pleasure. And bravo, great first performance.
It was quite invigorating. Let's do it again. Well, we'll be coming back to this debate over how far the state should reach into the world of business in more depth next week. Our thanks to Oren Cass, Sarah Miller, Christiane Arndt Baskell, and Michael Devereux. The producer is Amika Shortino Nolan, with additional production from Kim Gittelson. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Rachna Schanbogue, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.